All right, let's continue on. Um, we're going to look at Exodus 17 this morning. Turn your Bibles to Exodus 17. It goes Genesis, Exodus. If you have a Bible like mine, it's found on page 52. I'm going to begin reading at verse 8. You guys know the drill. You sit for my words, but we stand for God's word. So let's stand. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of the men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. And when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. I love this picture. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on each side, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So or therefore, in light of this, Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. I will completely blot out the memory of the Amalekites under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord, and the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites. For generation to generation to generation. This is God's word. You can be seated. Okay, just to bring us up to speed where we are in the story, God gets his people out of Egypt. He makes a way when there was no way. And then in response to that dramatic event of God parting the waters and and God's people get to the other side, Uh, They're standing on that shore, and all they can do is what? Especially you on the west side should know this since you already got this sermon. Exodus 15, what do they do? They worship. They sing. And they sing about the kingdom of heaven. The song ends with, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Or more literally, the king kings forever and ever. Because this is what Exodus is about. It's about the kingdom of heaven. It's God hearing the cries of his people and seeing their chaos and and unleashing his, his stunning reign and rule on that chaos. And it's God making a way when there was no way. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's God reigning and ruling. I love how Isaiah puts this. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the gospel. The gospel that our God reigns. That's the gospel. The gospel is the reign and rule of God that's unleashed on chaos, bringing about shalom. I mean, the first thing we read about in our Bibles is is the kingdom of heaven. It's God's reign breaking into the tohu vebohu. 
and bringing about shalom. It's the gospel that the lame will walk and that the deaf will hear and that the blind will see and that the dead are raised. That God will make a way when there is no way. That's the gospel. It's his reign and rule breaking into our rule, into our world bringing his shalom. Anybody have an amen to that today or not? I mean, we know that reign, don't we? I love Psalm 96 because it goes, Our God reigns, and therefore the trees of the field will clap their hands, and the mountains will sing, and the valleys will dance because he reigns. That's why we sing. That's why we clap our hands. That's why we dance sometimes. It's because God reigns. Now, that's the story of Exodus, which is also the story of God, the kingdom of heaven. Um, Verse 8 also shows us something that's also just as true. Uh, Look at verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. God's kingdom will always have opposition. There is an anti-kingdom that loves chaos, that hates shalom, and will do everything it can do to undo God's good creation. I mean, we see it right at the beginning. Already in Eden, you have God's special people, Adam and Eve, in God's special place. In Eden, under God's rule, enjoying God's presence, increasing that rule and presence in all creation. Yet there's also what? A snake. And the snake is right there with the single intent to do what? Basically, to infect Adam and Eve with his deadly venom, to exile them from the garden, and to see the collapse of God's kingdom. Who wins round one? The snake. The world falls back into chaos. And then throughout the story, we see these two kingdoms. We see the kingdom of heaven, and we see the anti-kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is God's people under God's rule who bring shalom to chaos. Then there's the anti-kingdom, a people who reject God's rule and are always seeking to bring chaos to God's shalom. In fact, the Bible is a story of these two kingdoms. And these two kingdoms we see throughout the story are always in conflict. So whenever there's a David, there's also... A Goliath. And whenever there's a Samson, there's also Philistines. And when there's Elijah, there's Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. And where there's a Jerusalem, there's a Babylon. And wherever God's people are, there's either Babylonians, Assyrians, Philistines. There's someone who's seeking to take them out, to destroy them. Because the kingdom of darkness is desperate, absolutely desperate to foil God's plan of redeeming and recreating the world. Now, Exodus 17, just think about where we are in the story. God is literally in the process of redeeming a people for himself through whom he's going to redeem the whole world. And what do you have? What do you have? Amalekites. Who are the Amalekites? I'll give you a brief history of the Amalekites, and this is biblical history. This is all in your Bible. The Amalekites are descendants of Esau. Do you remember Esau? 
Esau is the firstborn of Isaac, who is the one who's to carry the blessing of God, the gospel of God, the kingdom of, of God, and he's to take that upon himself and impart it to his children. But what does Esau do with that? He wants nothing to do with it. He rejects it. Why does he reject it? Because of his appetites. His appetites actually get the best of him, causing him to reject God and his place in God's family. So Esau, through a concubine, has a bastard son named Amalek. And the Amalekites, then, are these descendants of Esau, and they're all over the biblical story. Historically, the the, the Amalekites are slave traders. The way that they made a living is they would attack vulnerable people groups and then they would sell these people that they captured as slaves. In fact, they had a reputation for being bullies. They oppressed the weak. They took advantage of the vulnerable. And I think this fits our story. Because here is Israel coming out of Egypt and about to enter the desert and they are most vulnerable. In fact, God describes what Israel is at this point in Ezekiel 16. He says, you are like a newborn infant. You are unwanted and just thrown out into a field left for dead. And these Amalekites come all the way from the Negev, which is 100 miles away, because they are passionate about destroying Israel. In fact, Deuteronomy 25 provides a little bit more insight into this whole event. You can either turn there, which is on page 143, or you can just listen. Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19 says, this is God speaking. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out, how they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind they had no fear of God. So when the Lord, gives, the Lord your God gives you rest from your enemies around you in a land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of the Amalekites for under heaven do not forget. And here's what they did. We get a little more insight into this. They... Don't just attack God's people, but they attack the weak. They attack those who are straggling behind, uh, probably the old, the sick, uh, the most vulnerable. And that's just who Amalek is. He's a big, ruthless bully. If you want to know how upset God is about this, listen to our text. Listen to verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. This is the first time in the Bible where God says, write this in my word. In fact, when you get to the book of Deuteronomy, which is the book that... uh, God inspires Moses to write just months before, 39 years later from where we are here, just months before they're about to enter the promised land in in Deuteronomy, God 
over and over again says, all right, people of God, I want you to remember some things. He says, I want you to remember Egypt, how you were slaves there and how I brought you out. He says, I want you to remember your wedding day, how when you stood before me at Sinai. He says, I want you to remember the desert, how I led you all those years there and how I took care of you and provided for you. He says, I want you to remember me. He says, I want you to remember my faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I want you to remember Sabbath to keep it holy. And then God says in, Deut- in, in Deuteronomy 25, he says, I want you to remember the Amalekites. God never says this about Egyptians. He never says this about Philistines. He never says this about Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, or Romans. But he says, remember the Amalekites. Not just remember them. Blot them out completely. Eradicate them. Why? But we have to ask why there, don't we? Well, I think, first of all, this shows us God's heart towards bullies. I mean, those who oppress the least of these and who ruthlessly subjugate the weak and who take advantage of, uh, of the vulnerable. This is God's heart. Blot them out. In fact, Deuteronomy 25 highlights something about the Amalekites. It says about the Amalekites that they had no fear of the Lord. God says they didn't fear me. Well, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, if you read Torah, the first five books of the Bible, God spells out what not fearing the Lord looks like. Let me just read some passages from Leviticus. It says, do not insult the deaf or cause the blind to stumble. You must fear the Lord. It says, stand in the presence of the elderly and show respect for the aged. aged. You must fear the Lord. It says, show the fear of God by not taking advantage of each other. If one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and cannot support himself, support him as you would a foreigner. Do not charge interest or make a profit at his expense. Instead, show the fear of God by letting him live with you as your relative. Or if one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and is forced to sell himself to you, do not treat him as a slave, but show your fear of God by treating him kindly. That's what it means to fear the Lord. The way it gets translated and lived out in our life is how we treat the weak and the poor and how we show respect for the aged And I can't believe that there are Christians today who say, but Jesus just abolished all that. I'll tell you, there's more to this with the Amalekites. I mean, here they are as all the nations, literally in in the song that you're going to learn, some of you next week, which you already uh, heard last week on the west side, the song of Moses in Exodus 15, where it, it talks about how all the nations now stand in fear of God because they have seen what he did to the Egyptians and his mighty hand, but not the Amalekites. There's no fear of God. 
And so this is just, this is much deeper than them just bullying a weak people group, but they are literally attacking God, and they're trying to thwart God's plan of redeeming the world. I mean, it's just like the snake again in Genesis. Genesis. Amalek is the snake of Exodus. In fact, the way the original language reads in Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 25 and talking about the Amalekites, it's simply the word Amalek. In other words, this is the doing of Amalek. This is a clash between God and the snake. And see, the way the snake always works, he knows he can't touch God personally. But what he can do is he can defeat God by striking at God's people. Because he knows that if he can take out God's people, like he did Adam and Eve, he can poison not only God's good world, but he can poison God's whole plan of redemption. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but the Jewish people throughout their history have labeled anyone who has tried to take them out. And it has happened so many times throughout history. They they simply put the label of Amalek on those people. During World War II, their code name for Adolf Hitler was Amalek. Their code name for the Nazis were the Amalekites. In fact, even more recently, Netanyahu called Iran Amalek. And we read that, and we don't have a clue as to what he's saying. But if you know your Old Testament, he just said something profound. He basically just said, I mean, Amalek is synonymous with Satan himself. And you read the rest of the biblical story from here. 1 Samuel 15, God gives Saul actually the honor of taking out the Amalekites of fulfilling Deuteronomy 25. Saul spares too much, and this is why God rejects him as king. And it's because of this incident that uh, not only does Amalekite take Saul's life, But centuries later, when you read the book of Esther, it tells the story of a near holocaust of God's people, and it's through the scheming of this man, Haman, by which the kingdom of darkness almost eradicates God's people from the face of the earth. And Haman, who's the mastermind of this uh, Jewish genocide, is, the text says, an Agagite, and Agag is the Amalekite king who Saul spared who now centuries later is threatening to take out God's people and the seed by which God is going to redeem the world. Do you feel this battle that's being waged? So in Christ, the king to end all kings, the Messiah enters the world to unleash the kingdom of heaven. I mean, we should expect massive conflict going on between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of heaven and read the gospels and you will see that there is a cosmic battle taking place. And today this anti-kingdom is alive and well. We are born into a world at war. And the New Testament teaches us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not political. Jesus wasn't a Republican or a Democrat. It's deeper than that. There is an anti-kingdom that detests and hates the kingdom of God 
and his Christ. And too many Christians today in our part of the world have this peacetime mentality. Almost like we want to remain oblivious to this battle that's raging. I can't tell you how many Christians, especially Christian theologians today, who are offended by this battle theology. Don't preach that there's a battle. What? Exodus 15, the the song they sang, they sang, Our God is a warrior God. And you better believe he's a warrior God. He fights. And he's going to war against evil and injustice until it's vanquished. He will. And Jesus said almost sarcastically, he said, Peace, peace? Really? Peace? I come to bring peace. There's a war going on. And are we today going to say peace, peace to our partners when they're at war? When their lives are at stake? When their churches are being burned? When their property is being confiscated, we're going to say, peace, peace? Are we going to say, peace, peace, to our brothers and sisters in North Korea? Just this month, 80 people were publicly executed. Do you know why? They had a Bible. Are we going to say, peace, peace, to our brothers and sisters in the Middle East? Are we going to say peace, peace to the apostles? All but one of them was martyred. Are we going to say peace, peace to Paul? I just love that. I mean, Paul would just be like, are you kidding me? Let me just take my shirt up and show you my back. Christianity Today came out with a, a, a statistic that just literally stunned me. 160,000 Christians are martyred every year. And this doesn't include confiscation of property. This doesn't include imprisonments. This doesn't include beatings. This doesn't include torture. This is 160,000 brothers and sisters who are martyred every year. But I have to hear comfortable American Christians say, stop talking about this in battle terms, like there's a battle or a war raging. I don't want to be a comfortable American Christian. I don't know about you, but I don't want that. I don't want to be a people that can't handle the truth. I don't want to be a a, a people that can't handle reality. I, I, I want to listen to our partners as they talk about what they're talking about. Now, in light of this battle... How do we do battle? Well, in our text, there are two spheres of activity. There's there's the sphere of the battlefield where Joshua and the Israelites are waging war against Amalek. And then there is the mountaintop. I mean, look at verses 9 and 10. 
Moses said to Joshua, choose some of the men to go out and fight the Amalekites. That's the battlefield. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua fought the Amalekites on the battlefield as Moses had ordered. But Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. And see, the text wants us to see these two spheres because the text begs us to see that there's a direct correlation between what is going on on the battlefield and what is going on on top of that mountain. Because look at verses 11. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. So what is it then that's going on on top of that mountain? Well, you have Moses up there with his staff. And what does that staff represent? Do you remember? What does it represent? It represents the finger of God or the hand of God. It's, it, it's the staff or God's finger that turned the mile in, in, into blood. It's the staff that unleashed the plagues. It's the staff that parted the Red Sea. So Moses says to Joshua, okay, Joshua, you and your capable men go down to the battlefield and fight, and I will be up on the top of the hill with that staff in hand. So when you fight, look up and remember that the finger of God is with us. But see, as I read this closely, I think the text wants to show us that this isn't just about the staff, which represents the finger of God. Because a blurring is beginning to take place between the staff, which represents the finger of God, and Moses' actual hand. Because look closely at verse 11. I want your eyes to see this. Go down to your text. As long as Moses held up the staff, no. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands... The Amalekites were winning. What's causing them to win or lose? Is it the staff or is it Moses' hands? And see, when I read this, I see the emphasis is less on the staff, on the finger of God, and it's more on Moses' actual hands. And I know some of you are starting to squirm because what you're, you're saying, okay, Rod, what are you trying to imply here? That this is more about Moses and less about God? No, I'm not implying that at all. But something is going on. God is teaching Israel, this little toddler, how to walk. Because remember what he said when the Egyptians were approaching them? He says, do not be afraid, just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again because the Lord himself will fight for you. You just stay calm. Just watch. Watch my finger. But this time, they're asked to fight. And Moses must have his hands lifted up. Why hands lifted up? Well, in the Old Testament, to lift up your hands is to pray. 
I mean, Moses, you need to picture him. And I don't know uh, if that PowerPoint's working right now, but I'll, t- I'll take a, a, a shot of this because I just thought this week I would uh, just... We know what that means, don't we? And when I see that... In fact, I'll, I'll be honest, when I saw that, it brought me right back to Derek Tages. The first time I saw him was at a gathering in, at a church in Chicago, and I was sitting three rows behind him, and I, I just saw that guy, and I just said, I want to know that. I want to be that. I want to I, I be this. This is what we were made to be and do. So Moses is up on this mountain with his hands lifted in prayer, what he's doing is he's acting as a priest. He's standing in the gap between God and God's people as a great mediator. What he's doing is he's interceding to God on behalf of the people. And what the text begs us to see is that what's going on on the top of the mountain has a direct correlation. What's going on on the battle as Moses prays. So goes the battle. Now, what I love about this image of Moses high on a hill with his hands outstretched, is that ancient armies in that day would go into battle with their flag or their banner, much like the armies in, in more recent times. I mean, just even think today about how football teams run, run out onto the field. It, it's either with their flag or it's under a banner. And, and the Egyptians in this day were especially known for taking these banners or these flags and erecting them um, on large poles that oftentimes would be raised on a high hill so that the army could always see it and be inspired by it. And I think this is exactly what's going on here because look at verse 15. Moses built an altar at the end of the battle and he said, The Lord is my banner. He names this altar Yahweh Nessi. The Lord is our banner. The word for banner in Hebrew is the word nis. It's the word for flag or pole or banner. And so what I see going on here is is Moses tells Joshua and the men of Israel, the flag that we're going to fly today is going to be up on that hill. It's going to be me. With my hands outstretched, that's the flag. That's the banner. That's how you're going to know the finger of God is with us. See, God's growing this people because God from the beginning is not looking. I got to say this right. God from the beginning is looking for a partner. Adam and Eve, would you partner with me to bring my reign and rule to the world? Abraham, would you partner with me to impart my blessing to all the families of the earth? Moses, would you partner with me? I want to send you to Pharaoh. Israel, would you partner with me? I want you to be a kingdom of priests who priests my glory and reign and presence in all the world. And see, within this partnership... We are not just passive. We are called to do things. We're called to be things. It's not just God for me, but it's God for me for the world. It's God for me for my neighbor. It's God for me for my city. It's God for me for my school. It's God for me for my work. 
And we are called to the battlefield to fight. And see, prayer is right at the heart of this partnership because prayer is actually how we fight. It's how we war against the injustice and the evil of our world. It's through prayer. Ephesians 6, where it talks about our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the rulers of this dark world. And then it goes on and talks about the armor of God that we need to have. And then it talks about the thing that we always miss. And pray at all times. In the spirit. Because that's how we do battle. Now why prayer? Because I feel like prayer is the antithesis to everything that we've been taught. Because the things that I've been taught, the way you get things done, and the way you make things happen is you exert yourself, and you roll up your sleeves, and you get after it. When it comes to war, you train and you get the best equipment and you build the biggest army and you amass the most weaponry. Here's what prayers does. Prayer is the recognition that in and of myself, I am nothing and I can do nothing. But as I trust him, as I look to him, His power, his power is made perfect in my weakness. You see, prayer is never an excuse to not fight because God says fight and and, and we must be on the battlefield. And and what do I mean when I talk about battlefield? It's the place where where there's chaos. It's it's the tohu ve bohu of our world. (laughs) We got to be there. In fact, the whole way that we're going to fulfill the creation mandate, which is God saying to Adam and Eve in the beginning to rule and subdue the earth and to bring everything under his rule, we're going to do that through prayer. The way we're going to fulfill the Great Commission, it's going to be done through prayer. Because where our world is in chaos, where our world is in pain, we as the church must be present as God fears. And what does it mean to be a God-fearer? We help the poor. We help the weak. We show respect to the aged. But also where our world is in pain, the church must be present in prayer. I mean, think about how Jesus taught us how to pray. It, it wasn't so much God help us to get people to heaven. It was no, let your kingdom come. God, may your kingdom and your reign come to my neighborhood. And God, that marriage across the street that's falling apart, may your reign and your rule come to that. And to the person who is sick, God, would your reign and your rule enter that sickness? And this city that's sick, would your reign and your rule come? Jesus taught us to pray the kingdom. And if you're a praying person today, I just want this to encourage you. And if you're not a praying person and we're, we're, we're not a praying church as we ought to, I want this thing to hit us right between the eyes because prayer is the ministry. It is the way we fight. We fight through prayer. Do you know how this battle with the snake is eventually won. 
know how God crushes the head of this snake and undoes his deadly venom once and for all? I mean, all the hints of it are right in our text. In Isaiah 11, when it describes the coming of Messiah and the glorious reign that he's going to unleash, which is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because it's just beautiful. To, to, to look at the kind of reign and rule that, that Messiah will unleash. And, and verse 10 of, of Isaiah 11 says this about Messiah. Messiah, like Moses, will stand as a niece, a victory banner, a flag for the whole nations. Two verses later in verse 12, it says, this banner will be lifted or raised up for the four corners of the earth to see. What is Isaiah referring to? Well, again, this word niece or banner or flag is only used a few times in the Bible. In fact, following our story in Exodus 17, does anyone know the next time that niece is used or banner? Numbers 21, God's people are again complaining. They did a lot of that. God this time sends snakes. Moses cries out to God. God, people are getting killed. They're getting bit by these snakes. Please help us. God commands Moses, okay, make a bronze image of a snake and lift it up on a pole. It wasn't just any pole. It's the Hebrew word mis. Because the way that God is going to undo the venom of the snake in this story is by putting a snake on a niece. And God says, when people come to this niece and they look at it with the eyes of faith, they'll be healed. And centuries after this, Jesus explained himself to Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, you remember when our people were bitten by snakes and how God had Moses lift up that niece, that victory banner, that snake on a pole, and how people would come to it, how they'd look at it, how they were healed. Well, Nicodemus, therein lies the mystery to how God is going to save and redeem the world, like that snake lifted up on a niece. So the Son of Man will be lifted up high on a pole. God's Isaiah 11 banner or flag to the nations that's going to be raised for all four corners of the earth to see will be Messiah pinned to a pole and lifted up. So that those who are infected with the snake's lethal venom, which leads to death, they can come to that snake on a pole the Son of Man lifted high and look and be healed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that anyone who'd come to this pole with the eyes of faith would be healed. (laughs) This is how the snake is crushed once and for all. Like God's son becoming cursed like that snake and absorbing all the snake's venom within himself. We need to let that sink into our hearts. Do you see his niece? Do you see the victory banner that the God of the universe flies for the four corners of the earth to see, to say to the whole world, I defeated the snake, I defeated the curse, even sin, all of it, even death itself. I win! I win! And look at my flag that I fly. 
because that's how I win over the chaos. That's how I win over the tohu bohu. It's the Son of Man lifted high on a pole. It's God on a cross. I'm going to tell you what, this is why we can enter the battle today. And this is why we can fight, because like the Israelites in Exodus 17, who could see their mediator Moses standing as a banner, look at our mediator, Christ. The victory's been won. We are playing in a game that's already been determined. We're fighting a battle that's already been won. So here's my question to you today, and I'm going to end with this. Are you in the battle? Are you right now engaging in darkness? And if you are, we don't do this in our strength. Our eyes are constantly fixed on Jesus. We see his banner. We see his knees. We know that he wins. Christus Nike. Jesus the victor is what the early church said. It's what propelled them. Some of you aren't in the battle today. But hopefully you at least know some people that are in the battle and the battle might even be getting the best of them. And we just heard this morning of people that are in the battle and there are people all around us that are in the front lines in the battle. And we need to be like Aaron and her. We need to be people who are lifting our hands up to God on behalf of them. Church, we have to pray. We have to pray for our brothers and sisters who are engaging the front lines of the battle right now. If we're not going to be on the front lines, then let's pray for those who are. And if you claim to be in the kingdom of heaven today, you have to be either in the battle or at least on the hill praying for those in the battle. And if you're not, but you're just on the sidelines and you're living a comfortable, cozy, American life. Really? You know what I think about all the time? I think, you know, we spend such a small amount of our existence in this world. I mean, it's just a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. And yet we take this little drop in the bucket and we try to maximize it and make it all that it can be. But we don't live in light of the end, in light of eternity. And I think to myself over and over again that I'm going to spend eternity with people who have been martyred for Jesus. You know how Revelation describes people who have been martyred? I'll put this in athletic terms because I understand athletic terms pretty well. I don't know if you ever played a sport where you're just on the field or on the court with someone that's just amazing and you're just like in awe and you're just, you respect that, that player so much because they are so good. That's what those who've been martyred are going to be in eternity. We're going to look at those people as spiritual champions for Christ. And that's why so many Christians 
especially in the early centuries, literally wanted to be first in line to be fed to the lions and first in line to hang on the cross. They wanted to be spiritual champions for the champion, Christ. One life to live. There's a war that's raging. Rise up, O church. Let's fight. Let's pray. God, I just can't thank you that enough for our mediator, our king, who kings, our Christ. who's already sealed the fate of the snake, who's already won, who's already achieved the victory. God, help us to not seek cozy, comfortable lives. But may our lives count for the sake of the gospel. For the glory of our King, And everybody said, Amen.